Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Good morning, Grant Memorial. Good morning. My name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're excited that you have joined us today and that you made it through what uh, our weatherman was calling yesterday the storm of the year in order to be here. Uh, as we continue our series in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Now, um, you would be right. You, you may have picked up a little bit of sarcasm in my voice, but you would be right to say, Cam, what do you know? You live two minutes away. Uh, so perhaps the roads are really tricky this morning. Uh, I don't know, especially out of town. And so for those of you who may normally be here, um, but instead decided not to risk it and you're just joining us online, you get a pass this morning and uh, we hope you enjoy your snow day, trusting that God's word infiltrates your home where you are as we dig into it together today all across the province. Well, friends, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Genesis chapter 21, starting at verse 8, where we will pick up in the aforementioned study in Genesis. Genesis 21, starting at verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered into the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as he sat there, as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me in the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. 
Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, accept these seven lambs from my hand as witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a, a, a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray today that as we encounter a text like this, that we would uh, leave differently than how we came as a result of encountering you and your word this morning. Amen. If you could summarize all that we just read with one word, what would that word be? Pray. Okay, pray. Millie's got pray. That's one, one vote. You see, we just read, and you may be struggling to come up with a word because we, we just read a whole lot in that passage, didn't we? Right? We started with a party. We worked our way through an exile, complete with near-death experience, and then we ended with a political treaty at the end. In, in some ways, this passage seems disconnected and random, but I would contend that the word that packages it all together into a cohesive narrative is grace. And by that, I don't mean our youth minister, Grace Wheeler. Uh, and she's not going to come up and package it all together for us. That's not what I'm talking about, although she may have some great insight into it. But what I mean is that throughout this entire chapter, the common denominator of these seemingly arbitrary events or matter-of-fact historical timeline is the grace of God. And so our goal this morning is to walk through our passage and look for God's grace in the middle of it all. And I want to start off first with the party that we read about in verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. If you were with us last week, we saw God's long-awaited promise of a son come true as 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah had a child, naming him Isaac, which means laughter, as they themselves laughed and celebrated what God had done. And it's here where we see the first grace in our text, and that is through the promise, right? Everything that we read about last week regarding the arrival of Isaac was solely because of the grace of God. And our text this morning begins with a feast celebrating a miraculous child that two senior citizens had no business conceiving, carrying, or birthing, and in fact, did everything they could to stand in the way of it happening, including Sarah twice being taken captive by powerful kings and Abraham having a different son with Sarah's slave. The very fact that they are celebrating their son's arrival is itself an unbelievable gift from a gracious God who has guided, protected, and ensured that this promise would be fulfilled. 
Now, some of us may wonder upon reading this, why this party, this feast, happened when Isaac was weaned, right? That seems like a weird thing to celebrate, doesn't it? This wasn't a baby shower that happened as soon as he was born. It wasn't a first birthday party with the classic photo op of Isaac eating an ancient cupcake and getting icing all over his face for Instagram. Rather, this was a different kind of celebration. You see, in, in biblical times, the celebration of weaning or moving from mother's milk to solid food represented both the transition out of the dangerous and precarious stage of infancy, right? Remember, infant mortality rates were much, much higher, as well as symbolize the child's first step towards participating in family and community life. And so here we have Isaac at roughly the age of three, the age of weaning at the time, being celebrated not only for his existence and survival, which is worth the celebration alone, but also for his movement toward active involvement among the people or nation that God had in mind for him to lead. This wouldn't be much uh, different than a civilization celebrating the milestones of a prince who would one day wear their father's crown. And while I'm sure that the feast was a good one, the spirit of celebration didn't last very long for Sarah and Abraham as we we come across a but in verse 9. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham, was mocking. So during this celebratory laughter... Another laughter rings out from Isaac's older half-brother, Ishmael. Only this laughter is a laughter of ridicule and contempt. The text is really poignant here, actually, in the original language. The actual Hebrew word for Ishmael's mocking is laughter. It's a a twist on the word laughter. And so... um, Isaac, whose name means laughter, is being laughed at during the celebration of the laughter of Sarah and Abraham, right? That's how the text reads. And Sarah notices that Ishmael is laughing in the wrong way. Now, it it is likely that all of this doesn't take place in one moment, right? It's likely that something develops As Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son, struggles with the notion that his younger brother was being celebrated as the firstborn. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? Ishmael, who's around 16 years old at this time, understandably doesn't like this three-year-old who would take his birthright and leapfrog him as the primary heir of his father Abraham. And this attitude is displayed. And this does seem, uh, again, it, it seems a little harsh because we just hear him mocking, but it does seem to go beyond simple ridicule. As the biblical history tells the story of Ishmael's actions towards Isaac actually being a form of persecution. Galatians 4.29 says, At that time, the son born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit, Isaac. And so what starts with mockery likely develops into something else. And Sarah determines that this must come to an end through the removal of Ishmael and his mother Hagar from the community through exile in the wilderness. Verse 10. 
Sarah said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's heir will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Now, before we move on with our account, I, I don't want us to miss just how quickly Sarah goes from extreme joy to perceived lack. How quickly a but ruins the celebration of what God has done, right? Sarah, whose barrenness has made her miserable for her whole life, received the one thing that can bring her joy, a miraculous gift she had been dreaming of and praying for, and in almost no time, the gift of her son was not enough. Sure, she was thrilled that Isaac had come, but there was just one more thing that needed to happen before she could be really happy. Hagar and Ishmael needed to go. And church, I think we need to pause for a moment and ask ourselves, each of us, what is my one more thing right now? What is that thing in your life that if you had that, everything would be good and you could be fully happy? Now I want to ask you, what was your one more thing just a few weeks ago? Or what was last year's one more thing? And why is that, assuming that has been resolved, not enough? We all have this tendency, don't we? There's something in our lives that keeps us from contentment. Right? It's what we pray about. It's what we work for. And yet, even if we get it, it doesn't quite satisfy. Because there's always, you know, just one more detail. One more thing. And this perpetual discontentment keeps us from joy and keeps us from God. And I don't think that this is accidental. I believe that... that is a key strategy of the enemy is to keep us from thankfulness, to keep us from contentment by trying to get us thinking constantly about what God hasn't done yet rather than, on, than what God has already done, right? And it leaves us dissatisfied with where we are at present. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes, uh, writes this of the enemy's goal. He says... He wants a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future every real gift which is offered us in the present. Think about that. He wants a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end. Church, we are, are bombarded with talk of the future, talk of uh, what is next, what will be better. And as a result, many of us are robbed of the present and the contentment of resting in what God has done already. Don't you think that if Sarah had spent her time focused on what God had done rather than what she wished would still happen, that she might have had the faith that God would take care of her son Isaac? Right, that if God could reopen her womb, he could certainly bring about peace between Ishmael and Isaac. 
but fixing her eyes on the issues in front of her rather than the God who was with her, Sarah demanded the one more thing, telling Abraham that Hagar and Ishmael needed to go. And while we don't know her entire reasoning here, it likely included concern for Ishmael's influence over Isaac, anxiety about the ever-present strife sure to exist between the two boys, fear that Ishmael would be given leadership within the community over Isaac due to the age difference, worry over the trajectory of Ishmael's mockery, jealousy, and disdain, not to mention how uncomfortable she would have felt with, it, with them in the community, having her sin in constant view of her at all times. Right? We can assume that all of this played into it. But the one thing that we know from the text is that she was concerned for Isaac's inheritance. Sarah didn't believe that her son Isaac should share his inheritance with the son of a slave. That Isaac and Isaac alone, the legitimate son in her mind, should inherit all that belonged to his father. And so one, uh, while some of these concerns are perhaps understandable in the sense that we get why Sarah wants Ishmael gone, we must not confuse her actions here as warranted or noble, right? They're based on fear, and they were rooted again in a lack of trust that God was in control, as we have consistently seen from Abraham and Sarah, Sarah wasn't prepared to wait and trust in God. She wanted the problem uprooted and cast away. Now, Abraham, the text says, understandably wasn't quite as thrilled as Sarah about the idea of sending his son Ishmael away. Verse 11. The matter distressed Abraham, Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Now, this concern was not a moral or legal concern. Old Testament Theologian Bruce Waltke writes, in the Lipit Ishtar law code, right, this would be the law code known to Abraham from growing up in Ur, a clause stipulates that if a slave bears children and the father then grants freedom to her and her children, the children of the slave shall not divide the estate with the children of their former master. Sarah's demand to expel Hagar and Ishmael from any share in the inheritance appears to be based on moral and legal grounds, right? This was allowed. So Abraham's pushing back wasn't based on the fact that this wasn't the right thing to do or based on a legal requirement that he had to Ishmael. He was distressed, as the text points out, because it involved his son. Ishmael was his son, his 16-year-old son, his only son, for 13 years before Isaac came along. And giving up your son is not an easy thing to do, as we will see again next week. While Sarah had nothing invested in the son of Hagar, Abraham did, because he was Ishmael's father. And so he wrestled with the thought of what he should do. And it's here where we see another grace of God. It's through the parting of Ishmael and Hagar from the community that we see God's grace. As Abraham ponders what he will do, 
concerned, I'm sure, about all of Sarah's objections to keeping Ishmael with them, and on the other hand, devastated at the thought of sending his own son away, God shows up in Abraham's mess, reassuring him that he is faithful through an amazing and comforting promise. And really, the summary of the promise is, trust me, I will take care of both of your sons. Look at verse 12 and 13. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. Right? Did you pick that up? I will take care of both of your sons. First, God says, your promised offspring will come through Isaac. All that I have promised you will come to pass. I will protect him and do what I said. But in the same breath, God tells Abraham that he will take care of Ishmael too. Let him go, God says, and I will take care of him as well. While this people is not his people, I will protect him and make Ishmael into a great nation also. And in this reassurance, God nudges Abraham to do as Sarah said with the confidence that both sons will be okay because God is gracious and he is faithful. Now, as we have needed to remind ourselves all throughout Genesis, we need another reminder that this, what we read, is not God's ultimate good. Right? Granting Abraham a son only for him to be sent away at age 16. Right? Here, God is simply cleaning up the mess that Abraham and Sarah made 17 years ago when they took matters into their own hands and Abraham slept with Sarah's slave Hagar. You see, God had never promised Abraham Ishmael in the first place. Right? Think about that. God never promised Abraham Ishmael. God didn't say sleep with Hagar. And so God had no requirement to take care of him. God had no requirement to bless him. Ishmael was the result of Abraham's sin and distrust in God. But God, in his grace and mercy, chose to bless him for the sake of his friend Abraham. What a gracious God, right? Who worked even this situation for the good of the one he called according to his own purpose as we read about in Romans 8. Right, the grace that God shows here through this parting is that he protects Isaac and the promised community he is to lead. He alleviates the concerns of Sarah even though they're born out of her sinful nature and he reassures Abraham that Ishmael will be taken care of too. Well, as per Sarah's wish, after God's encouragement, Abraham sends his son Ishmael and his mother Hagar away. Verse 14. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. So when we look at this map, you know that I like maps. Um, when we look at the map, Abraham was in the area of Gerar at the time. Remember, that's where the red circle is. And so uh, Hagar and Ishmael are sent off to the east for the second time, right? Hagar finds herself wandering in the wilderness again. Do you remember when Hagar first became pregnant in Genesis 16? 
She ran away from Sarah, who was mistreating her then as well. And she found herself in the desert, unsure of what to do next, until the Lord came to her and told her to go back. Well, here we find Hagar in another desert, due to no choice of her own, unsure again of what will happen next. Well, verse 15 and 16 tells us that in short order, she and Ishmael ran out of water and had concluded, or she had concluded, that they would not survive. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. Now, one quick translation note here to clear up some confusion. While the English text suggests uh, that Ishmael is a boy, right? It uses this term boy, implying that he's a child. The word translated for boy is closer to the English word lad or young man, which could be applied to children, youth, even adults alike, right? We see this word in several instances in the scriptures for multiple ages. King Solomon refers to himself with this word at age 40 in 1 Kings 3. Uh, Joseph's brother Benjamin is called a boy, this word at roughly age 40 as well. And so it's not inappropriate for this word boy to refer to 16-year-old Ishmael at the time. And in addition, the language that suggests that Hagar lifts and carries and places Ishmael implies not his young age and feeble dependence, but rather his state of dehydration as he is left for dead under the shade of a bush. But regardless, as he had, the last time Hagar was in the desert, God showed up, showing his grace to them through his provision. Right, through his provision, verse 17 to 19. God heard, and I'll change it, God heard the lad crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, matter Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the lad as he lies there. Lift him up, take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God provides what they need, showing that he is close to the outcast. Right? It, it doesn't matter. It, and he doesn't forget the ones on the margins, no matter where they happen to find themselves. Right? As Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle at the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Even in the desert, away from their people, alone, God is with Hagar and Ishmael, providing for them, guiding them, and holding them fast. And as he did with the victims in Sodom in chapter 18, God hears the cries of the downtrodden and he graciously responds. In this case, providing water in the moment, verse 19, and providing his own presence throughout Ishmael's life. Look at verse 20. God was with the lad as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. 
And as we see, as we will continue on in Genesis 25, we'll see that God makes good on this promise to Abraham and to Hagar to take care of Ishmael. As we see that Ishmael lives for 137 years, fathering 12 sons who settled as 12, 12 tribes throughout the ancient Near East from modern-day Egypt to the west to modern-day Jordan to the east. Well, the fourth grace that we see in this text is the grace of protection for Abraham and for Isaac as he grew up. You see, just as he did with Ishmael, God protected Isaac as he grew up as well. You see, Ishmael wasn't the only threat to Isaac's safety. Right? Having Ishmael exiled didn't ensure the security of Isaac. Right? I'm sure Sarah moved on to the next one more thing pretty quickly. As there was a constant threat at this time of the surrounding nations. And these particular nations were historically irreligious and irreverent toward the one true God. Verse 34 at the end of our passage tells us that Isaac grew up of all places in Philistine territory. Philistine territory, if you can believe it. If you've read much of the Old Testament, you are certainly familiar with the Philistines, known nearly exclusively in terms of their enmity with Israel. It's the Philistines that the Israelites seem to be in constant conflict, and the kings of Israel regularly warred. Do you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was captured? Well, it was taken by the Philistines. You remember Samson and Delilah? Well, the enemies that captured Samson were the Philistines. How about David and Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. Right? Throughout history, the surrounding nations, where they found themselves, would be antagonistic to God's people. And yet, for this season... This precarious time frame when Isaac grew up and when Abraham's people were not yet big enough to fend off the opposing nations like Gerar, God kept them safe. And he, did, and he did so through the signing of a peace treaty. Remember a few weeks ago when Abraham messed up big time again by telling Abimelech, king of Gerar, that Sarah was his sister, not his wife, which resulted in Abimelech taking Sarah into his household and almost taking him to be his wife. You remember that? Well, God's intervention in that episode proved to have an effect on Abimelech. And Abimelech here reaches out to Abraham. Think about this. Don't let this pass. Think about how abnormal it is that the large, powerful nation reaches out to the small traveling people to broker a peace deal. Verse 22 to 24. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Right? Thanks be to God. Right? That's no thanks to Abraham. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me in the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, deal. Right? I swear it. Now this account is, is a little bit longer as the conversation um, ensues about a contested water well 
uh, and some details about how the treaty is settled. But the summary here is that God prompts the king of Gerar to provide a place of protection for Abraham and his people as Isaac grows up. Abimelech, who should have been a lifelong enemy of Abraham as a result of Abraham's deceit, actually becomes the means through which God enables a sentence like verse 34 to exist. Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. This passage tells us that life is relatively uneventful, read peaceful, for at least the next 12 years and perhaps up to the next 34 years, depending on when it is that Abraham moves on. Right? Peace for 12 to 34 years in a foreign and otherwise hostile land. Right? Church, that is strictly by the grace of God. Now there's more that we could unpack in this text, but before we unwrap and head into communion, I, I do want to do want us to consider what each one of us is invited into as a result of this passage, right? It's good to learn about what happened, but, but I think we need to understand that texts like this invite something of us, right? This text invites us to intentionally look for the grace of God in our own lives. Sure, this text is about God's grace for Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Hagar, Ishmael, but it reminds us that God himself is gracious. It's in his character. And we can be sure that he will prove to be gracious in our lives as well. And so one takeaway today, and perhaps some homework for us, though admittedly not as fun as last week's homework to go laugh at funny videos, is to look for the grace of God in our own lives to notice the way God has been working in the big things and the little things, in the good times and the hard times, in our successes and our failures, because that is what we've read about here, God being gracious in every circumstance. For some of us, like Abraham and Sarah, we're invited to notice and remember the gifts that we have graciously received from him and to celebrate with thanksgiving. For others, like Hagar and Ishmael, we're invited to see how the seasons of difficulty, loneliness, or exile in our lives have been used by God for his own glory and our good. For some of us, perhaps we're in the midst of waiting right now, or we're in the middle of the desert. Well, we're invited to look for what God is doing and to wait expectantly for him to graciously provide and to protect I don't know where you are at, if you are celebrating, if you are struggling, if you are in the midst of an uneventful season as Abraham was by the grace of God for 12 to 34 years. The encouragement remains. Look for the grace of God. Remind each other, even over lunch this afternoon, to look for the grace of God and name it in your life. What a shame it would be, church, if we missed what God was doing, if we missed experiencing grace upon grace because our eyes were too busy fixated on ourselves or on our circumstances to see the one who is above it all, working in each and every moment. Thanks for listening with us. 
For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at Grant Memorial Church.